Welcome to the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Michael. Still Kent. Still Ethan. And today we're going to continue a conversation that we started in the last episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast. But before we do, I want to remind everybody that we've got an amazing, awesome event coming up on Saturday, March 28th at the Boulder Piano Gallery at 2.30. It's a free event with a very special guest, Dr. Rika Narimoto composer who is joining us all the way from Japan. It's a unique opportunity to get to work uh, and ask questions directly to somebody of her stature. She's an award-winning composer, and uh, it's going to be an amazing thing. It's free thanks to some funding from the Boulder Arts Commission. And this is part of Boulder Arts Week. There's a ton of great stuff going on in Boulder. Uh, Check it out at boulderartsweek.org. So, welcome back to Michael. Thanks. <laughs> nice to see you. Uh, how, how have your adventures been? Why have you missed three episodes of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast? People have been, uh, we've been inundated with letters, angry letters. Like, how can I go on? How can I continue to, where's my fix? I need my Michael. Weeping. I need my Michael. <laughs> nice. The short answer is that we recorded three episodes in one day. And on that particular day, I had like three rehearsals. <laughs> Oh man, we're breaking another rule now. (laughs) Breaking the fourth wall left and right. The fourth wall? It's like in a sitcom, you always see three walls of a house because the fourth wall is where the camera is. You never look at the camera. You never address the audience directly. So if you actually do that and you talk to the audience or you look at the camera, that's breaking the fourth wall. So Mike, uh, the last couple of episodes we talked about watershed moments, meaning... Uh, instances where you hear a piece for a bassoon and it gives you that oh wow kind of moment of I didn't know the bassoon could do that or I didn't conceptualize the instrument as being uh, very effective in that range or whatever right uh, do you have any of those moments any pieces in particular yeah I was I mean I had the benefit of getting to listen to the podcast that you guys recorded and so I've been thinking about that can I have like four of oh, them, or should I break dang. it down and be, be less obnoxious about it? Um, do you um, have them in a particular order? Yeah, I mean, I could put them in chronological order. What about order of importance, like the one that had the biggest effect? Okay. Um, the one that had... Well, wait, wait, wait. If, if you do have them in that order, let's do least effect to the greatest. We'll build up. We'll, <laughs> like, we'll structure this thing. We'll build right. the tension. The crescendo will be unbearable. Okay. Um... So, I mean, let's not call it least effect. Let's call it the one that was very effective, but there are others that I'm going to list that were more effective. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to demean the, the first one. The first one is also the first one chronologically. I was a, I think I was a junior in high school, and I went to the Swanee Summer Music Festival at the University of the South in Swanee, Tennessee. Very beautiful campus. The first piece, um, that made me start thinking about the bassoon differently and music differently uh, is we did a master class on some orchestra excerpts and um, Stravinsky, the Firebird, was one of the ones that uh, one of the college students was working on. Um, Mr. Lotes told a, a story, an analogy, to try to, you know, kind of get a sense of it and, and create the emotional character that we're trying to portray. And he mentioned that in the ballet, uh, this is the part where the firebird is uh, 
doing the, the Bersus, you know, the lullaby to enchant the demons into um, their, you know, magical slumber. But the analogy that he put forward was singing a lullaby to your child. For six feet, eight inches tall, he said, <laughs> I don't know, it was pretty great. He, um, he talked about holding the child in your arms uh, and just having the opportunity to look into the child's eyes uh, and to, to spend time uh, sort of connecting and to see in the child's face your own face and your own features, to see yourself in the child and also to see um, your, your spouse, your mate as well in the child's eyes. And he did it in a very sort of poetic and, you know, he really packaged the thing and sold it. And the two uh, college young ladies that were, were studying the piece were like almost in tears. <laughs> As a high school boy, it, 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 was, it was okay, but they in particular were rather affected and taken by it. But to have something so um, tender uh, and sensual as something that the bassoon can pull off would have been the first, the first thing that made me start thinking about, about the instrument differently. So wait, you were a junior in high school? Yeah. Mm. And up to that point, you just never thought of the bassoon as anything other than a, just this blunt bass instrument? Yeah, I, um, as I remember from previous episodes, um, each of you guys had kind of a youth orchestra experience. I didn't have that. It was high school band for me, and it was concert band, and it was always louder, faster. When you're a bassoonist and it's louder, faster, that basically means you're playing the trombone part and nobody can hear you, um, and you can't hear yourself. I, I distinctly remember approaching um, my assistant band director complaining about the fact I had counted it up and like 82% of my music for this one particular concert was whole notes. And I was like, look, for the next concert, can I have something that's not just whole notes? And he said, Brian Emerald, I'm looking at you, man. He said, well, you know, what you've got to do is just play the best whole notes you possibly can. <laughs> and of course, cop out. of course he's right and cop out. So what, what was number two on your list? The octet. Stravinsky's octet. It's a good piece. So, so far we're batting a thousand with Stravinsky. Yeah, I'm a sucker for Stravinsky in all, in all ways. So what was the what was the impact that it had? Oh, some of it would be the the technical bit, the sort of nimbleness, and some of it would be the um, exposure. It, it's a part that, if you're used to playing a bunch of whole notes with the trombone section, then this is a a piece that really lets the bassoon section uh, be prominent and and do some pretty funny, cool things. And then the other part, I think, as I've mentioned before, I'm a very sort of nostalgic character. And so just the process and the experience of having a small group of my colleagues and working really hard and practicing really hard and having a really good performance of a big piece like that was pretty good. And then I guess the, the number one impact would be a tie. Right about the time that I first heard the Christopher Millard Melange CD. Melange. Melange. Um, 
is also right about the time that I started working on the Saint-Saëns Sonata, Opus 168, the first movement and the third movement of the Saint-Saëns. And the um, Henri Dutilleux Sarabande and Cortège. Yeah. From Christmas Barnes. Uh, the opening, the, the, the Cortège is super tough, mm -hmm. um, but the opening, the Sarabande, is just gorgeous. It's really mm -hmm. rich. Paul Jean Jean, the prelude in scherzo. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the the early part, the prelude, uh, and the Charles Kirschland opens seventy one, the second Sonata. movement that's in like six and a half four. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a nice piece. So wait a minute, what about those? I mean, you just listed four <laughs> pieces. Yeah. Well, so that's all, all tied for so number one. Yeah. <laughs> so this isn't so much yes. a piece as an album. It's well, it's okay. So it's not so much a piece in particular as yes, an album. And the Camille Saint Saëns isn't on that album, uh, but the um, the sensitivity and the uh, lyrical nature and the the sound and that tone quality uh, that he had. So this and is the more nuance. You were more. The watershed moment wasn't so much the pieces as his performance. Um, no, it, it was both, I think. Um, after listening to the album, I ended up working on the pieces. And so, you know, the pieces themselves revealed quite a bit. And yeah, I've got to give props to, to the performance on that album. Do you have recordings of... You playing those things that we could use? Um, most of those things I played when I was an undergraduate, and I lost most of that stuff in the fire. Uh, so the fire. it is possible that somebody I know may have a recording. It's good for us to mention that most of the music we've used for this podcast uh, has been taken from student recitals. Like, for example, I know that we've used a recording of me in my junior recital, first time I ever played in front of a you know, an audience for a recital purpose. And so anytime you hear these recordings... Cut us a little <laughs> bit of slack. Right. <laughs> With a grain of salt. And, and we've also used our professionally put together CD from the opposite shoulder. Speaking of which, now a word from our sponsors. That was a good segue. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Forest's Music and Barton Kane. Barton Kane offers an excellent product. You can choose among a wide variety of gouge-shaped profiled cane options. And they're also committed to consistency in their product. Versatile, consistent, caring. Thanks, Barton Kane. Nice. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> what are you in advertising? <laughs> Guy's been watching Mad Men. Yeah. <laughs> Forest Music is another great organization. I just recently got some supplies from there, and uh, it was a great process. Shipped the uh, supplies quickly, and uh, everything was good. The other thing that's cool is there is quite a large variety of merchandise that you can, you can look through. You got music, you got CDs, you got all sorts of different evening supplies. So, what kind of CDs? Well, if you wanted to buy a CD, you could buy our CD from the opposite shore. Whoa. 
Well, folks, it's time to play everybody's favorite game. Oh, oh! Is it time to play What's on Kent's iPhone? What's on Kent's iPhone? Sweet! Alright. It's really fun Let's to see. watch Kent take his iPhone out of that suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before you hit play, let's go through some predictions here. Mike, what do you think we're, uh, we're in for? Ooh, predictions. Look at that guy's face. Look at that mug, and look at that giant phone. What do you think is going to come out of that thing? The face or the phone? <laughs> I bet Kent's iPhone is going to give us weather report. You think I recorded weather reports and stored them on my iTunes? No, no his weather report is a band. 70s. Well, I just showed my deep knowledge, didn't I? Well, apparently Weather Report is not on Ken's iPhone. Can we edit that part out? All right, well, Mike's guess nosedived. Uh, Ethan, what do you think? Uh, let's see, I'm going to go with John Tesh. <laughs> wow! <laughs> what made you choose John Tesh instead of Yanni? Live at the Acropolis. Acropolis. I chose John Tesh because who, who was it I was talking to? I can't remember. But they went to a John Tesh concert at Red Rocks. And I was thinking, wow, John Tesh at Red Rocks. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> We haven't played at Red Rocks, but John Tesh oh, still does. <laughs> All right, well, my guess, uh, I'm going to guess us, actually. What if it actually winds up being the Bully Bassoon Quartet? A valiant guess. All right, well, here we go. Oh, the planets. Yep. Which one is this, Mercury? Yep, Mercury. Well, I guess I'm closest. <laughs> Uh, at least has yeah. That's a nice one. I haven't heard that in a long time. It's interesting that most of the stuff, actually everything I've played so far has happened to be classical. Oh, don't forget the Christmas Miracle. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a Christmas tune played by the Boston Pops. Well, all right, you win. I yeah. lose. You're smart. <laughs> I'm dumb. You're very handsome. I'm not attractive. Well, as long as you're willing to admit that. <laughs> So to conclude all this, now that the four of us are all here, let's just go right down the list of your number one choice of like watershed moments with the bassoon. Kent. Oh man, that's hard to do. We already did. <laughs> but I, I gave you like three of them. Yeah, no, so pick one, recap. Oh man. What were your three choices? I forgot. Well, one was the uh, Weber, Andante, and Hungarian Rondo. Okay, so not that one. Okay, not that one. The next one was uh, the Jolivet Concerto, right, which awoken was... me to the nimbleness of the bassoon in the high register. Uh -huh. And the third one was listening to Paul Hansen, I believe, who uh, plays jazz nimbly in the high register. But I'd have to go with the Jolivet. All right, we got the Jolivet. Ethan? Yeah, I think I might uh, pick a different one than I listed, probably. So really? The, what? One of the ones that I listed was the Nucio. Yeah, right, the Nucio. And a mildy. And a mildy was another one, but that, that's... I can't do the mildy for the ultimate watershed moment. Um, <laughs> so I actually thought that was a really interesting choice. Although, I mean, although it was really a pretty, a pretty profound uh, moment. And for the record, it's for, Ludwig mildy. Right. Yes, not to be confused with something. Bob mildy. <laughs> 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 uh, so actually what I was thinking of... Um, 
was one, one of the Bach uh, cello suites being played on bassoon. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting, um, an interesting exercise in just seeing just how flexible the, the bassoon is in terms of being nimble, like Mike was saying, and just being able to really uh, play something play something musically that was clear, clearly in some spots not written for it. Like, I mean, there are some spots that are just super treacherous for the bassoonist, but... All right, so we've got one guy changing his tune here to uh, Bach Cello Suite. I had mentioned the John Williams Bassoon Concerto, yeah. and I'll stick with that shirt, but I also wanted to add in something, which is the Concerto for Bassoon and String Orchestra with Marimba by Mosetich. It's a good one. And the reason I want to add that in there is not so much because it made me, you know, it opened my eyes to what the bassoon could do or anything like that, but it's, I think, maybe one of only two pieces, maybe three in the bassoon repertoire that I just simply like. If somebody says, like, hey, you want to listen to this piece from bassoon, I would listen to it for uh, interpretation, bassoon tone, style, all that kind of stuff, um, but not so much for the piece of music itself. But for the Mosetich Concerto, that's just such a cool piece of music. If I'm looking to kill time or if I want some background music or whatever, I might turn that on just because I enjoy it so much as a piece of music. That is something I cannot say for the great majority of bassoon repertoire. Like, who's going to say, hey, you want to listen to the Hummel Concerto for fun? <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to add that in there, the Mosetich Concerto for bassoon. That was written in, what, 2003, I think, for Michael Sweeney, principal bassoonist of the Toronto Symphony. And it is a gem. All right. And Mike, you got to recap and pick one thing. Okay. Uh, I, can, I can pick one. But before I do, I have two, two interjections. Um, isn't it interesting that you are so focused on the craft that you don't enjoy any of the standard pieces or the non-standard pieces on their own merits you you are not able to listen to them without analyzing the style or the interpretation for the most part i think the style the interpretation the tone the individual's take on it becomes more interesting than the piece of music itself because what do we have to choose from if i'm going to listen to something for classical music there's a billion things to choose from uh, you've got all the Beethoven symphonies and Sibelius and Respighi and Stravinsky and Tchaikovsky and all this great stuff. For fun, just for the sake of fun, why would I choose? You know, again, I keep coming back to the Hummel Concerto. It has some lovely little melodies in it. In the repertoire for bassoon, I like, what, Vivaldi? Depending who's playing it, the Mozart Concerto can really be very nice. Um... And I'm thinking of concertos, not the sonatas or chamber music. Oh, okay. well, that limits the field. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so fair enough. All right, so throw in sonatas. What do you yeah, got? Okay. You got the saison. That's nice. I like the Kirschlein. Really, it's only nice the second line. movement. I'm, I don't know. The first, the outer well. movements are fine. You got all that French conservatory stuff. Some of that isn't bad. I mean, that's like, 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 like what you're saying. Like what you say. <laughs> Some of that is not bad. That's like, like the best okay. thing you could say about it. I like well, let me get more specific. I also it's like all it. the same. <laughs> that's the thing. Is you, you play one or two of those, and then it's like, okay, I understand the French conservatory stuff. Yeah. I, I would I would play the Jolivet Concerto just because I enjoyed listening to it. 
it's not it's not just because the bassoon is doing stuff that's crazy it's the interplay with the orchestra the it's an interesting instrumentation and then there's an orchestra there's a pianist and there's a harpist and they're all put to major work throughout the concerto so that that's one of the reasons i like it so even though i love the bassoon so much i'd rather listen to like Sibelius violin concerto or something. The other thing I wanted to insert was that we had a, um, a guest master clinician at Metro a couple weeks ago who is uh, a big New York City um, avant-garde improvised saxophone jazz guy. He demonstrated some really bananas, uh, crazy sounds like, you know, the quote-unquote extended techniques and stuff. And then he talked for 30 minutes about how he's been studying the Bach cello suites <laughs> in order to um, discover both uh, sort of compositional and theory-related things and also just the core technique of the instrument. How do you make a beautiful sound? So I thought it was interesting that Ethan said Bach cello suite. And I think my final answer is going to have to be uh, the duty by Millard and the, the nuance that he puts into that phrasing. I like it. Cool. Final answer. Well, there you go. We look forward to the day when we can listen to somebody else's podcast and they mention how listening to From the Opposite Shore was a real wake-up call for them. <laughs> oh, man, we had no idea that Bassoon could do so much cool stuff. I, it's coming. It's coming. Paul Hansen, Bassoon Quartet number one, man. It'll do it. There's some good stuff on there. Next episode, we're going to have a very special guest with us, Dr. Rika Narimoto. And she is a composer extraordinaire. We, we have her piece, The Sound of New York, included on our CD from the opposite shore. And we would love to have any uh, questions that you have so that we could ask those to her. So hit us up on Facebook and Twitter and email and whatever else. You can contact us at boulderbassoons.com. Our email address is boulderbassoons at gmail.com. And anything you want to know about the life of a composer, especially an international composer, uh, this is your big opportunity. Well, cool. Nice to see you guys again. Bye, Mike. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to the next couple of weeks of many, many concerts. So to close this up, what should we listen to? I guess we could do some Mosaic. Yeah, do some Mosaic. That's cool. I like that. Oh, you have a recording yeah. of the concerto. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, we should yeah, definitely do that. Do that. Yeah. yeah, there's no question. So to wrap this up, here's a little snippet from the Mosetish Bassoon Concerto, taken from a student recital. Enjoy. Enjoy.